A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. Stay ahead of all the big games in the best league in the world, the Premier League. With the latest odds, form guides, expert opinions and more. The fans are the players at Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at ladbrokes.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org. T's and C's apply. Hello and welcome to the Game Day podcast from Talk Sport with me, Sam Matterface, and the Talk Sport football correspondent, Alex Crook. Hello. Hello. And European football expert, Kevin Hatchard is here. Hello. Hi, Sam. Ten Premier League games to preview, including Saints versus the Red Devils. Which United are we going to see? The Angels of Monday night or the hellish performances of the first two games. Liverpool look to bounce back from a poor start. Arsenal look to extend their lead. And Kev comes for Crook over his ridiculous Koulibaly comments. We'll have to wait right to the very end for that. This is the Game Day Podcast from TalkSport. Oh, what a week we've had of Carabao Cup football and Premier League football as well. Alex and I were at Old Trafford on Monday night. Have you recovered yet, Alex? Emotionally, maybe not, to be honest. It was one of my favourite nights at Old Trafford. I thought the atmosphere was intense. I thought United were brilliant. And just seeing the joy on my two boys' faces, uh, one of whom said United would lose 8-0, was a special moment. I'm sure it was just the same for Kev. (laughs) Uh, It was certainly emotional. (laughs) Move on. (laughs) It was a a shock. It it was a shock in many ways. It was a shock for everyone. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Alex, as you will know, I did text Alex and say I've got a bad feeling about this. So I did text him in the morning did and you? say that I, I wasn't 100% confident about so what, this. So what was it down to? I mean, we, we didn't get to talk about it on the post-match review at the weekend because, of course, it took place on Monday night. So what was it down to? Just very quickly, Alex, was it down to Liverpool not being very good and this terrible habit they've got now of conceding the first goal in every game? Or, or were Manchester United just a little bit more sensible and decided, hey, we know what we're suited to. Let's play that way. I think Liverpool have got issues, no doubt about that. I, th- I think the midfield is, is a problem area. I know they're holding out for Jude Bellingham, but is that them effectively writing off this season in terms of challenging Manchester City for the title? I don't think enough has been made of how much they will miss Sadio Mane. Darwin Nunez, of course, was suspended on Monday and is a good player, but he's a very different player to Sadio Mane, so I think that's a problem. And I think Trent Alexander-Arnold is a problem defensively when he gets attacked down that right-hand side. Having said all that, I thought to a man at Manchester United Rex, and I think it was minute one when Lissandro Martinez kicked Mo Salah up in the air. I know that is quite basic and maybe a bit archaic, but that really got the crowd invested. You could see there was going to be effort, commitment and passion, all the things United have lacked. And tactically, I thought Ten Hag did very well. It set the tone, actually, for the rest of the week in the Carabao Cup where uh, good teams went to bad teams and just got battered physically by their opponents. Poor old Jamal Lascelles had his nose rearranged three times during the game at Tranmere on Wednesday night. Andre Anana, I think, got kicked about 16 times during the match away at Fleetwood. Um, and there was an incident in the game I was at at Prenton Park where Kane Hemmings went in on Carl Darlow, which was about as red as the blood that was streaming from Jamal Lascelles' nose. Yet, uh, I think he, he got, just about got a yellow card, but the referee had to have his arm twisted up his back in order to, to get it out. Um, a quick word on uh, Liverpool. You don't win the title if you lose 
or fail to win your first three games, Kevin. It can't be all over yet, though, can it? No, I don't think so. Liverpool were 14 points back last season and were able to nearly overhaul that deficit. But I think Alex is right. I think there are problems. I think the injuries have been a massive issue. You know, if you haven't got Thiago, if you haven't got Diogo Jota, they're two massive players to miss. I think at the back as well, Matip and Konate being out, you know, you've got that big gap between Joe Gomez and Trent Alexander-Arnold. Huge problems there. Is it, so it, is is it, is it injuries again? Is it injuries again? <laughs> and look, Sadio Mane isn't missed. There's no doubt about that. But what choice did they have? He wanted to go. They couldn't block that. I don't think there was a will to block that. You know, he's been a great servant to the club. They got a decent deal for him. So I think they were just put in an awkward situation. So Liverpool have been in worse positions than this. Uh, and I remember well having uh, far worse teams than this and going to Old Trafford and losing. So I'll take this at the moment. OK, we'll see how they get on at uh, against Bournemouth uh, this weekend. They're at home and they don't usually lose at home. But we start by going to the south coast to see if Manchester United can back up their very good performance against Liverpool against Southampton. Crook, in one word, can Manchester United win down at Southampton? Of course. He's only defending Ten Hag because Alex himself is a purveyor of ill-fitting suits. Self is a purveyor of ill-fitting suits. Ill-fitting suits. Manchester United in their green kit on Saturday lunchtime at midday. Crook, are we worried that they are going to blend into the grass again and not be able to see each other? I mean, that is a big concern. Well, it would be ironic if that happened at Southampton, wouldn't it, after Grey Shirts mm. uh, debacle when Fergie was in charge? It's a horrid kit. It's, it's a really bad idea, I think, really to design a kit dreadful. that's the same colour as the grass, but they can't use that as an excuse. I think this is a big um, big test for Manchester United because they were so good against Liverpool, but in some ways that all becomes redundant if they then go to St Mary's and produce the type of performance that we've been used to um, in recent months. So I think it's, it's vital for Eric Ten Hag that the players uh, back it up and they show that that wasn't just a, a one-off, a, a freak result, that it was genuinely the turning of a, of a corner. I'll be interested to see if he names the, the same 11. I don't see why he wouldn't, although I do worry a little bit about Shea Adams in the form that he's in up against Lissandro Martinez because I think that will pose a different threat to what he faced against Liverpool. One 100% of his aerial duels so far, despite being my height. Uh, I could be a central defender, no problem. Uh, United adapted their philosophy for the Liverpool game, didn't they, Kevin? It worked. Will they go back to playing out from the back? And what dangers does that pose? They won the game with 29% possession on Monday. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to see David De Gea's role because they effectively said to him, right, no short stuff, just kick it long. Uh, And not only did he kick it long, he kicked it towards that channel where Joe Gomez and Trent Alexander-Arnold were. Uh, And that made a big difference in the game. So against a team like Southampton who love to press, press with that high energy. And he's gone to this kind of four box two formation, hasn't he? He's, He's changed recently and that seems to have got them a little bit more structure and you look at the way Southampton have shown real guts to come back against Leeds against Leicester so they're on a bit of a high so I think the worst thing that United could do is put De Gea under pressure by going back to the original plan the problem with that is of course Eric Ten Hag has come in with a philosophy he's come in with a plan at some stage you have to rip off the band-aid and you have to say well it doesn't matter who we're playing this is how we play. So it was pragmatic against Liverpool. I suspect it'll be a similar approach, at least with the goalkeeper against Southampton. 
But at some stage, you've got to play the football that Ten Hag really wants to play. But it might only be when he's got all of the players he wants that he's able to do that. And when he's got a bit more on the ball in terms of points, because two defeats to start the season wasn't great and they needed something from that game on Monday night. They certainly got it. How important, Crook, is it that Rafael Varane stays fit and that he and Martinez get the chance to form a partnership? Because the statistics are pretty clear, aren't they? When Varane is in the team, Manchester United are much better. Yeah, and I think um, when you found out that Harry Maguire w- was dropped on Monday, you were a bit sceptical about that because I think your stats show that when Maguire and Varane play as a pair, yes. actually the record is, is very good. But how much of that is down to Varane, I guess, is the big question. Because let's be honest, Harry Maguire, to me, at club level, looks like a player who's completely uh, lost his confidence. And I think in some ways it may have been a relief for him to be taken out of the firing line um, on Monday night. I don't see him going to Chelsea because I think United... Still need him um, as a backup option, still need him in, in certain games where maybe they're up against a more uh, physical presence in attack. And they need him because Varane won't stay fit. That's the biggest problem. And I think Kev flagged that up actually uh, when United first signed Rafael Varane. He's a winner, clearly a, a top class central defender, but he picks up too many niggly injuries. And that is something United are going to have to cater for this season. Um, they use the power of the crowd at Old Trafford, but they need to self motivate down at St Mary's. Monday night is not going to be the benchmark, Eric Ten Hag told me. It can't be. It's got to be a way of life. The way you live your life, the way you approach the game, the way you approach your your day-to-day activities, all have to be done with a certain level of attitude. So it shouldn't matter whether you're home, whether you're away, whether you're being buoyed by a crowd or not. And he's talked a lot about attitude, hasn't he? And, And I think, first of all, everybody thought, well, what the hell is he going on about? But actually... He's got a real point, hasn't he? The difference in the way that they approach the game on, on Monday night compared to the Brentford match and the Brighton match was stark. Um, but will we see Ronaldo? Will we see Casemiro? Kevin, what, what difference is Casemiro going to make to the team? You're, you're the European football expert. Tell us about him. So I think there's an irony here that Maguire comes out of the team just at the moment when they buy a player that actually could protect him and allow him <laughs> to do his job. Because He'll be I back think in, half- don't worry about it. Varane will be yeah. injured on Thursday. Look, I think half the problem with Maguire is that he gets dragged out of position trying to fight fires everywhere. Mm. And part of that is poor judgment on his part. But part of it is a lack of structure in the team. And what Casemiro brings you is structure. He's a great ball winner. He's somebody who reads attacks incredibly well. He's happy to do the dirty work. He's happy to walk that disciplinary tightrope. But it's ironclad, that disciplinary tightrope. He almost never falls off it. Only sent off a couple of times uh, for Real Madrid. He is... Uh, a player with vast experience, a player that's a standard setter. I think that's the most important thing actually with him because not only can he bring his experience to bear, but because he's always down the gym, he's installed this hyperbaric chamber at home. He's got state-of-the-art facilities. Explain that. What's a hyperbaric chamber? It's recovery, effectively. So he can recover. Hyperbaric better. sounds pressurised. Is that right? Don't yeah, I, I think so. I think so. I think it's ba- it's basically recovery. It's basically a technology to allow him to recover as quickly as possible. And he worked very, very closely with Real Madrid's doctors in terms of making sure he was in the best shape possible. The other thing that they'll tell you at Real Madrid is that you look at the young guys. So young guys like Rodrigo coming through, Vinicius Junior coming through. He would say to them, let's go down the gym. Let's let's do work on some more stuff. Let's let's get ourselves in the best possible shape. And so he's they a good would, character. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you're talking about a club 
that has lacked those standards, a club that has lacked that basic attitude and energy in those games, that's the big difference. Um, and, you know, we talk about tactics and we're right to, but actually the basics still make a massive difference. And you saw against Liverpool on the Monday, you have that energy, you have that desire, you get the fans involved. It makes a huge, huge difference. In hyperbaric oxygen therapy, the air pressure is increased two to three times higher than normal air pressure. Under these conditions, it aids sports recovery, chronic fatigue, skin rejuvenation and stress relief. Should we get one for the podcast, you know, when we got those aches and pains after a, you know, a particularly busy week? How long do you reckon you'd have to spend in there? I'll take two. <laughs> um, what about Southampton? Let's talk a little bit about them because obviously they'll play a big part in the game. They've been slow starters so far. They fought back against Leicester. They fought back against Leeds. But it should be more difficult against Manchester United. They can't afford to give them a head start, can they, Crook? No, they can't. Um, and I guess that's the problem uh, when you keep putting yourself in a situation, as you mentioned, at the top of the pub with Liverpool, where you're having to come from behind to get points. That obviously um, puts a lot of extra pressure on you. I think defensively, there's still a work in progress. I think Jan Bednarek probably is on his way to Aston Villa. So they're planning for, for life without, without him. And I think, that, you know, they're still working out how to gel their new players and what is the best system? What is the best uh, use of personnel? I would expect Shea Adams, despite some rumoured interest from Everton, to start this game. He's been banging form uh, with the goals he scored last weekend against Leicester. Continued that in the it's, it's EFL not rumoured interest. They are they are interested. They are definitely interested. Yeah, I just wonder how far it's gone. Uh, you know, whether any tangible bid has, has actually been made. We shall see. I think there was possibly a, a point earlier in the summer when Southampton may have considered. Uh, cashing in on the Scotland international, but because he's come back into the team, I think with a point to prove, you can see that in his celebrations at Leicester last weekend, he's scoring goals. If he did want out, I think maybe he might have cost himself because uh, he's shown his worth and they don't really have a replacement. They've looked at uh, Gonzalo Ramos, the Benfica striker, but that looks a difficult deal to do. So I think Shea Adams is actually going to become quite an important player for Southampton this season. Maitland-Niles on loan as well? Yeah, that's a definite possibility. Um, they're attracted by his versatility, the fact he can play in midfield, the fact he can play at fullback as well. They're not the only club interested in you know, Bournemouth and West Ham have both held talks as well. But at the moment, Southampton appear to be in the box seat. And this is very different Southampton now. They've had a very different summer um, in that Ralph Hasenhutl has been able to get his players in early. They've not had to sell players to facilitate that. So as I've said on this podcast before, he's got no excuses uh, not to have a decent season. And actually after the rumours that he was under pressure because of a fallout with his players, they've taken four points from three games. No disgracing losing to Tottenham. A lot of teams will do that this season. It's been a reasonable start for Southampton. I think the thing about Hasenhutl as well is that this is a guy that's used to relegation battles. I mean, obviously he was at RB Leipzig and he was competing at the top end with them. But I remember his Ingolstadt team. Mm. And he had a, a really limited group of players with them. The fighters. And they fought and scratched and bit and that obviously didn't bite literally. But <laughs> they fought for every inch. And they, they were a real... Uh, a real group of battlers and to keep that team in the league in the way that he did was massively impressive. And what was even more impressive was then when he went to Leipzig and played that real safety first fighting football, he got to Leipzig and they played some brilliant stuff when he first arrived. I still do rate him very highly. I know that Alex knows that he's had problems with players. Maybe he's a bit jaded. Maybe the fact that 
dear budget is quite low. Oh, no, has Kevin. kind of worn on him. Have you not heard the latest? Have you not heard the latest? Go on. So on Saturday, as soon as they scored their winning goal, Crook sent a text which said, "The king is back." <laughs> King Ralph King Ralph is back <laughs> Quick quick, Get him the Manchester United job Quickly Whatever you do uh, Let's move on to 3 o'clock on Saturday <laughs> Liverpool against Bournemouth uh, Bournemouth have conceded 7 without reply Since beating uh, Aston Villa on the opening day Could this be just the visit uh, That Liverpool require To get themselves back on track Kevin? Yes uh, I think it is uh, I think not only to Bournemouth lack the quality at the moment. But Scott Parker, I think, has been quite downbeat about how they've approached games. They were very naive in that first half against Arsenal. They were shredded, really. And he seemed genuinely shocked by the fact that they hadn't carried out the plan. They played quite naively. And so it's one thing to not really have the quality or the track record to compete at Premier League level. But if you're also then not carrying out the basics that the manager wants... That's a real worry as well. I worry about where the goals are going to come from. Dominic Solanke doesn't have a proven record at this level. He may go on to score goals, but he won't. I always think of some of the German guys, for example. This guy called Simon Sorotta, who um, has scored buckets of goals in the second tier in Germany. But it's a running joke that he just can't score at Bundesliga level. He missed a penalty twice last weekend. So it's just not going in for him. So I think there's a big question mark over Solanke. And I think Liverpool... Even though they lost at United, and Jurgen Klopp got a lot of stick, rightly, I think, for saying we could have won the game, they did have spells where they played really, really well. So uh, I think Liverpool aren't in the crisis that people think they are. Uh, Liverpool aren't in the crisis that many people think they are, Crook. So this idea of infighting, sluggishness, a lack of creativity in midfield, a poor start, seven times in a row conceding the first goal, only twice as a team come back after failing to win the first three and gone on to win the title is not a problem. It is a problem. Uh, it's not a crisis. Um, and it's not a big enough problem that they will have any issues against Bournemouth. I, I don't mind the infighting, actually. You're talking about the incident between Milner um, and Shows Van Dijk. a bit of character. I like the exactly. fact that Milner turned around to Van Dijk and set up your game, fella. Because you, well, what, was, what was he doing? Standing off. Can, can I, I know we've spoken about Monday night, but we were right behind the goal. And my youngest son pointed at Van Dijk in the warm-up and said, look, Daddy, he's doing keepy-uppies all the way across the penalty area. I thought that was quite an odd thing for Virgil van Dijk to do ahead of a Liverpool-Manchester United game. And I wonder if it just showed a bit of arrogance, a little bit of complacency um, that maybe seeped into his performances. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but it, it just struck me as, a, as an odd situation to almost goad the Manchester United fans behind the goal by nonchalantly doing keepy-ups all the way across the penalty area. I don't know what your guys' view is on that. Look, I, I think Liverpool... I don't think they came into the game complacently. I think that would be wrong to do so. The very fact that Jurgen Klopp almost rang up Talk Sport to have a go at Gabby Agbonlahor for suggesting for a moment that Manchester United would roll over and get absolutely battered by Liverpool shows that he knew that it was going to be an intense atmosphere. And speaking to him afterwards, I mean, crikey, he was absolutely furious, by the way. I was talking to Eric Ten Hag in the tunnel and um, the interviews went on ages. I mean, there were so many interviews to do for both the managers over the course of the evening. I don't think I got to Ten Hag till 10.40, something like that. Bearing in mind, the game finished at 9.47, something like that. So nearly an hour afterwards, um, Ten Hag came to me. And then they both came at the same time and the clock was waiting for Ten Hag to finish. And actually... 
he suggested that if the interview didn't finish in the next uh, minute, then he was going off and he was going to walk out the double doors. And then I did finish the interview and he said, see, what can pressure do? Um, but anyway, pressure obviously uh, hurt Liverpool during the course of that game on Monday night, but they are unbeaten in 20 Premier League home games. You mentioned Scott Parker. He said that the Manchester City uh, and are not really in our league. That game was not really in our league. I wonder if that set the wrong tone, actually. It was the right message. I mean, obviously, they aren't in the same league as Manchester City. Obviously, they the points that they play for against Manchester City will be bonus points if they were to get anything. But I don't think you can write off games in the Premier League, and especially early in the season. There is always an opportunity to cause a, a big upset. I mean, see Fulham for details. The one thing you know about Scott Parker um, is that he's honest in his uh, interviews, maybe too honest for his own good at times. And actually, it was a very different tone um, after the Arsenal game. And that took me by surprise because he basically said their first half performance was not acceptable. He accused his players of lacking humility. Uh, I just thought Arsenal were very good for those first 20 minutes and that a lot of teams in the Premier League would have struggled to live with them. So maybe he does send out mixed signals. But I do think Bournemouth season almost starts in midweek. Uh, they're at home to Wolves on Wednesday night. They've had a, a nightmare run of fixtures. In fact, they're probably ahead of schedule, bearing in mind they beat Villa on the opening day. They were never going to win at Manchester City. They were never going to beat Arsenal at home. And they're probably not going to get anything from Liverpool. So it's almost more important, this Wolves game coming up in, in midweek in have, terms of springboard for the rest of the season. They have got more points than Liverpool, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. So I think they're ahead of schedule, actually. <laughs> uh, Kevin, quickly. I think it's about how you lose. I think you're right. I think you you look at these games against the big teams. It's a great test of where you're at. If you lose, fine. But I think what he was angry about against Arsenal was a lack of intensity. And he talked about recovery runs. And he talked about positioning. You have to get the basics right. And look, if it goes your way, it goes your way. But I think you can't just write off those matches. Every game is important, whether it's for points or for building confidence. Chelsea take on Leicester at three o'clock on Saturday. Chelsea's start the season has been so bad, apparently, that they decided to throw money at the problem. Um, where are they spending it? I mean, they're spending it everywhere, aren't they? I mean, the idea is that they get Aubameyang, Fafana and Gordon and anybody else who they can add 40% onto the transfer fee for. It's a strange policy from Chelsea. And I think, I think we're seeing here a bit of a lack of direction that comes from the fact they haven't got a sporting director. And Sam, you'll say, well, the plan was to keep Marina Granoskaya uh, in situ until the transfer window ended. And for various reasons, that hasn't happened. And I think Todd Bowley has got the best intentions in the world, but he isn't a football man. He, he isn't um, somebody who is used to necessarily negotiating deals. And I think they're paying over the odds. I, I think the reaction of the Everton fan base, who I thought would be uh, angry, uh, the prospect of selling Anthony Gordon says it all. That they're delighted at the prospect of getting sixty million pound for a player. I don't who's know if they're delighted, but Premier League, like four goals in seventy-four games, all told, sixty million quid plus the prospect of getting Brozier and Gon- uh, Conor Gallagher on loan seems quite a uh, quite a good deal for Everton. No wonder they're ready to bite Chelsea's hand off uh, for that. But actually, one of the big problems is is that there's no real sort of negotiation going on at this moment in time. I think Everton are in a situation where they're like, you know, it's the 25th of August, don't you? And if you don't come up with a deal that is palatable to us in the next few hours or days, then we're not going to be able to do a deal because then we're not going to be able to use the money that we get from the deal to build our squad or rebuild our squad. So there's a little bit of frustration that they're that it's taking so long to sort of get a straight answer out of Chelsea 
as well. Uh, the main issue really is is in midfield, and that's one area that they're not spending money in because Thomas Tuchel um, likes to play with just one midfielder, apparently, because that's what they did for the last 20 minutes in the game against Leeds United. You know, when you're chasing the game, let's just take everybody out of the midfield and play five strikers. What a really good idea that was. And, and N'Golo Conte can't stay fit. So, you know, if you don't think that Gallagher is going to be good enough to play in the team, then that is the area, first of all, that you try to stiffen up because Jorginho wants too much time on the ball, gets pressed every... This is a pressing league now. Man alive, yeah. you cannot dawdle on the ball. And he he likes at least two or three touches every time the ball comes to him. And that's just, that is just inviting pressure. They need somebody else in that engine room. Kovacic can't get uh, fit quick enough and they need somebody else who can drive them forward. I think possibly... They may have to, over time, shift to a change in formation to a 4-3-3, old-school Chelsea style. Yeah, I think it it is a real issue. Uh, And he likes that positional game. He likes the man on the ball to have options. But there have been some some strange decisions. I mean, Reese James is one of their best attacking outlets. So they they need to have some kind of situation where he never has to play as a wide centre-back because you're completely wasting his quality in that position. That's why they're spending it, £80 million on Fofana, then I said, I take it. I've now got the solution. Yeah, I, I, understand I think that's it a big part of it. That's a big part of it. But you look at some of the other players they're being linked with. Edmund Tapsoba's one at Bayer Leverkusen, who I think defensively has not quite been as good as he was when he first got into the league. He's not helped by the fact that Leverkusen are a bit gung-ho. I just find it very strange that I know they're slightly different players, so I understand that, but I find it really weird that you would let Callum Hudson-Odoi go and spend £60 million on Anthony Gordon. Well, yeah, I mean, that doesn't make any sense in terms of spending really £60 million on Anthony Gordon, but, you know, letting Callum Hudson-Odoi go, you might as well let him go because he's never going to play. He's never played. He's never played well, more than about 20 minutes. To, well, we go back to that time when he got substituted as a substitute. Yeah, and they should have sold him when Bayern Munich was sniffing around a couple of years ago. They yeah. should have sold him because they clearly haven't found a pathway for him to get into the first team. So as a result of that, when but what was it? How much did they offer? Some stupid amount of money. They offered Anthony Golden money for this guy. They should yeah, have yeah, taken they him. wanted it. Salah Hamidic was obsessed with him at the time. Really, really wanted to make that signing, and it was partially because Dortmund had had so much success with young English players or young Premier League players coming over. And Bayern, well, well we we need to be doing that. So Hudson-Odoi was the one that they targeted. I'd be really interested to see how he does at Bayer Leverkusen. In theory, it's made for him because his, his speed on the wing, his ability should really play into that system. But you talk about Chalaba potentially, you know, they talked about him being loaned out. And I just wonder if they've stepped away from that pathway of good young players coming into the team. And I don't think that's a good thing for Chelsea. Kevin, that pathway lasted about 13 minutes. It did, didn't it? And, I, and I, it's a real shame because I thought, oh, finally, they've got it right. Finally, they're going to allow these young players to develop, get into the team. is another one. I mean, can you really not use him? I, I find it really strange. Crookster, what else have you got for us quickly? Because they're going to beat Leicester, aren't they? You'd have thought so. Um, Obviously, the the Wesley Fofana situation adds an interesting narrative to this fixture. I think they're a a bit of a standstill there uh, because they're not willing to pay £80 million. I think the bid they have made, um, some of the add-ons in there were were fanciful, to say the least, to get it up even to £70 million. Unless they're quite adamant, they won't go below £80 million. So 
it's deadlock going into the final week of the transfer window. I think uh, Brendan Rogers just one shot of him, to be honest. I heard an excellent interview uh, with Brendan and, and our own Declan McCarthy in midweek, and he basically said the players made it clear he wants to go to Chelsea, so it's up to the two clubs to agree a fee. I get the impression he's sick of the whole situation and actually I feel sorry for probably him. if you asked him truthfully he'd take the 70 million pound and, and have some money to reinvest I, I think that's I feel sorry uh, for him. Leicester are in danger here of, of actually putting too high a premium on their player and then being stuck with somebody genuinely has no interest in playing for the football club I think the, the big issue and I think we're going to hear this a lot next week when um, I think you're going to you're, you're doing transfer deadline day I think the, the following week after transfer deadline I think you're going to hear a lot of managers complaining that deals went through at the last minute and it meant that they didn't have enough time to get in adequate replacements. It's a massive concern for Leicester. It's a massive concern for Everton. It's something that they've actually said to me privately. I know they're worried about the time frame. I mean, my advice to to anyone who's got a commodity that they know is going to retain their asset is, basically, you've got till Friday night at 5 o'clock. If you don't sign that player by Friday night at 5 o'clock, we ain't selling him because ultimately we haven't got enough time to replace them. I think they need to do the Michael Zork, Jaden Sancho, Manchester United thing. Put a date in the diary, yeah. get it done by then. If you can't do it by then, that's your problem. Do you know what's really interesting that you reference Michael Zork and, and German football? Sorry, because... did I say Michael? Did I say Michael? No, that's quite all right. Okay. Don't you worry. I'm sure he'd be fine with it. <laughs> they get their business done so early. They're, and and the, the clubs that are scrambling around on deadline day, and they shut earlier than anybody else. The Germans go home halfway through the day. Right, we're done. <laughs> if you're not sorted, we're done. So... They get their business done very early and it's very, very rare for a good club, a well-run club, to be scrambling around on the final day. So they they laugh, I think, at the way some Premier League clubs act, especially when they come and buy their players for massive money because they tend to, for better or for worse, get their stuff done very, very early. Uh, talking at uh, talking of Premier League clubs that uh, are being laughed at by some of those on the continent, uh, there's a bit of that going on uh, with Real Sociedad. <laughs> Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Premier League All Access Podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. There's a lot more to those 90 minutes than what goes down on the pitch. With the latest odds, form guides and expert opinions, you'll know the score with Labrooks. Odds update on Talk Sport with Labrooks. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18+, begambleaware.org, T's and C's apply. Saturday isn't Saturday unless 
it's game day. And Rashford is running through one on one with Allison. He shoots into the net and scores his first goal since January. We have a long way to go. I mean, you are in the process. Uh, you have to deal with setbacks. Sometimes you also you have highlights. Manchester United produce a performance that has earned them a stunning win against one of the best teams in Europe. Southampton have turned it around. Leicester one, Southampton two, and it's a second goal for Shea Adams. For Brentford, it's a gut punch. Fulham three, Brentford two. Jamari Gray inside the area, angles tight, drives it in. What a goal, Jamari Gray, and Everton retake the lead. For sure, in the first three games, we could have more points. We have to take. That on the chin at the moment and keep working. This is the programme that brings you closer to the football each day. It's Talk Sports Game Day. Arsenal against Fulham kicks off at 5.30 on Saturday. Remarkably, Arsenal start the weekend. Two points clear at the top of the table, but their performances deserve it. And let's be clear, this should be an absolutely terrific game, Crook. Yeah, it should. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Um, I'm going to be there for Talk Sport. <laughs> You're not allowed to say it, really, being a Manchester United fan. But I enjoyed watching Arsenal last weekend against Bournemouth. I thought they were, I thought they were brilliant for half an hour. They took their foot off the gas a little bit in the second half. But Gabriel Jesus, and actually, listen, we've waxed lyrical about Gabriel Jesus. Zinchenko, Zinchenko. I'm going to hold my hands up. Until six months ago, I didn't realise how good a player Alexander Zinchenko was. I think the first time that he really stood out for me was the way that he drove on that Ukrainian team against Scotland in the World Cup playoff, particularly with you know, the emotional turmoil that he was suffering at the time. But I think it's only when you take Zinchenko out of a Manchester City team that you realise how good he is and equally how well-class they are. Because in the Manchester City team, he almost gets swallowed up as just another number. You put him in an Arsenal team, and for me, he's head and shoulders the best player on the pitch. He's got a great engine. He's got great tactical awareness. He's got great technical ability. He's got everything you need um, in a modern fullback. And I do wonder if Kieran Tierney is going to spend a lot of this season sat on the subs bench. Well, there's two options, isn't there, as well? Because Alexander Zinchenko plays as a midfield player, but he also plays as a left fullback and actually does two jobs sometimes in the same game. And I mentioned that to you when I saw them at Crystal Palace on the opening night of the season. His role as that hybrid of a left-back and a central midfield player was actually the reason why they played so well in the first 25 minutes of that game. He had a massive impact down at Bournemouth last week and they have got they've recruited really really well and Edu actually deserves a lot of credit we spent a lot of time having a go at Arsenal for the way that they have run the joint over the last you know four or five years in fact going back longer than that but this is their best start in 18 years they've looked sharp they've looked incisive they look resolute I think this was this will probably be Kevin more of a test than than Leicester and Bournemouth but they should get over the line what have they got to be concerned about well, I, I think they should go into this with a lot of confidence because a lot of the things I'd normally be concerned about, I don't think are necessarily a problem. I'll be interested to see how they deal with Mitrovic. Yeah, be that's the key thing, isn't it? Yeah, I, and those physical tests are probably the ones they have to show they can pass. Technically, they're excellent. We know that. Zinchenko's a great example of that. Uh, and I think we're seeing a lot of the Pep Guardiola style in that, which is why I think Zinchenko and Jesus are, are such a great fit because a lot of there's a lot of kind of synergy between what Arteta wants to do and what Guardiola does. So it's about concentration at the back. I still worry about that from time to time. And it's about dealing with the physical challenges presented by Mitrovic. But Arsenal do look as though they've stepped up a level. I wonder how reliant they are on Gabriel Jesus, though, if he was injured for any period of time. He's going to be a big part of what Brazil do at the World Cup. That would be a concern. Eddie. 
Oh, well, yeah, they do. do. But again... The best paid substitute, arguably, in the whole of the Premier League, by the way. But there you go. That comes back to, again, with him, if they've got to use him as much as they can because he can't just come in cold. I know they've got European games, so that makes a difference this season. But balancing that squad, you mentioned Tierney already. It's a really important part of what Arteta does this season because Fabio Vieira... He's going to be, I think, a very important player for them going forward, a very important depth option in a couple of positions. But again, it's how much you use him. So that's a big part of Arteta's job this season. I think the five substitutes really helps a manager in terms of keeping people happy. Because, you know, let's just say you're you're playing a game against Bournemouth, for example, and you're 3-0 up within the blink of an eye. You can make five changes. You can get five people onto the pitch happily without really disrupting your flow of the game or you're you're not putting your game in jeopardy as a result of that. So I think that helps with squad management. Also, there's a lot of games. People like Tierney, he's not fit often enough. So the likelihood is is that he'll play his regular number of games, which is about averaging about 20 over the course of a season. Uh, Fulham crashed out of the uh, Carabao Cup to Crawley on, what was it, Tuesday night? Uh, did you get there in the end? Because you were struck, stuck in traffic, weren't you? You got there at half-time or something, didn't you? <laughs> I got there in plenty of time in the end, but it was a nightmare journey. Not as much of a nightmare evening for me as it was for Issa Diop, uh, Fulham's £15 million summer signing from West Ham. He looked like he genuinely never kicked a football in his life. It was embarrassing uh, as debuts go. And actually, Fulham's performance was pretty woeful. I think it exposed, as Marco Silva admitted to me afterwards, a lack of depth in the squad. He said we don't have two options in a lot of positions. So I expect Fulham to be busy between now and next week as well. That would seem like a really out-of-order comparison. Someone like you, who isn't a professional footballer, talking about a professional footballer, in that zone. But I suppose you have got sort of like direct correlation there because you look very often like someone who's never kicked a football as well. So you can sort of <laughs> relate to that. Kevin? Didn't Issa Diop get hooked at halftime against Kidderminster when he was playing yes. for West Ham? In yes, the he cup? did. Yes, he did. And I was at that game as well. And he had and a he never recovered. Time. He never recovered okay. his West Ham career from there. And listen, to be honest, he looked unfit, as I guess you would when you've not played a lot of football and you, you newly arrived at a club. But he looked devoid of confidence. But it was a way that a League Two striker just sprinted past him at one stage like he was running in treacle. Uh, big concern if Fulham are going to rely on Issa Diop to stay I, up this season. I think there's got to be some mitigating uh, circumstances here in terms of the way we assess the players that we've seen in the Carabao Cup. Because I noticed quite a lot of the score lines were very, very tight over the course of the week. A lot of Premier League teams going to League One, League Two teams and winning by the odd goal here and there. I don't think you should judge too much a, a squad on the basis of one that, a team that's made seven or eight changes. Also, it's a very different atmosphere. And I'm going to say it again. I went to two games in this competition this week, right? I thought the standard of the refereeing was appalling. I thought the physicality inflicted by some of the EFL teams on the Premier League teams was bordering on assault. I don't think that it's just, oh, Premier League players don't like it up them. This is proper football. I actually thought... Some of the challenges were nasty, disgusting, unnecessary. The one from Kane Hemmings on Carl Darlow, the goalkeeper of Newcastle United, was potentially a leg breaker, should have been sent off. I mean, he only just about got a yellow card. I wouldn't have been happy about that if I was Eddie Howe. Let's just put it that way. Uh, Manchester- Crawley didn't do that. Crawley played good football, okay. to, to their credit. Well done, Crawley. And Philippe would play good football. And actually, Tranmere didn't play too bad either, but they still kick people as well. Uh, Manchester City versus Crystal Palace kicks off at 3 o'clock on Saturday. Crystal Palace uh, won 2-0 at the Etihad last season. Can they do it again, Kevin? 
Well, they've certainly started the season very well. They're fun, aren't they, Palace? Which is, I know that sounds really basic, but it's true. I look forward to watching Palace. Yeah, we, we wouldn't have approach. said that two years ago under Roy Hodgson, would you? No, and and look, Roy, I think is a is a good coach with a great career, but he approached it in his way, and that is not expansive football. That is, you know, very measured, very safety first football. But this has been great, and I think Vieira. I think the results will come. I think you look at all the kind of underlying data, it's a remarkable transformation in terms of how they play football. Mm. And they can go into any game. Look at the way they approach the Anfield game. They they were really struggling in the early part of that game. No question about that. It looked as though Liverpool were going to steamroller them. Yep. That counter-attack was about as perfect as it gets with the Zaha goal. And that's what they can do to you. So even if they go somewhere and they know they're not necessarily going to have the ball, they have such pace and ingenuity on the counter-attack that they can do damage. That was really interesting, actually. Patrick Vieira, obviously, taking on his former club. When he was asked about how big an influence Arsene Wenger was on him in terms of becoming a coach, he said, no, not really. It was my time with Manchester City. And he said it was Brian Marwood and the work I did with him that really, that was what encouraged me to actually feel I could be a coach and actually get interested in coaching. And he's carving out a very, very reputable career, Vieira, but it's about maintaining it because actually that's something he needs to do. He wasn't able to do that in Nice, so can he do it with Crystal Palace? That rift between him and Wenger has never really been healed, I don't think. I, don't, I think he uh, I think he, he felt as if he, he was never really sort of invited back into the Arsenal fold once he, he left to go to Juventus. But he's also playing, he's, he's a politician, Patrick, he's, he's he's great diplomacy, and he knows by sprinkling these little seeds. Remember, they gave him his first start in coaching by sending him to New York City FC. Yeah. He's putting himself in the in the right zone just in case that Manchester City job ever does come up. I think he's a terrific coach. He's a terrific fella, uh, and I like him a lot. How much can Zaha trouble that City defence? Uh, maybe in the sort of Alan St. Maximan mode, Alex. Well, they've got a good record uh, against Manchester City. Um, if anybody in the Premier League has been City's Achilles heel over the past few seasons, it's probably uh, outside you know, the, the, the top clubs. It's been Crystal Palace. So I think they'll see this as a free hit. They're clearly playing with a lot of confidence. They have probably the best ever version of, of Wilfred Zaha. I don't think he's ever played any better than he is at this moment in time. How much of that is down to the fact he's out of contract at the end of the season is a, trying to put himself in the shop window for bigger clubs or B, trying to get himself a lucrative deal. I don't know. Uh, but I think he can trouble that Manchester City defence. And again, watching the game back against Newcastle, I mentioned it on the pod on Sunday, I think they did look like they had issues defensively. Carl Walker uh, certainly didn't have one of his best days. Uh, obviously, they lost Nathan Ake to injury early on. Gundogan ended up uh, having to shield that, that defence maybe more than he would have. They haven't really replaced Sinchenko down the left-hand side. So I think if, you, if you're going to get a Manchester City this season... It is in that defensive area. Uh, Brentford against Everton is another three o'clock on Saturday. I was with Everton at Fleetwood. I mentioned it. Six changes, good football, bruising encounter, but little end product. I know they want Brozier and or Gallagher from the Gordon deal, but they need to find someone who can score goals fast, Kevin. Yeah, they do. I was looking actually through their recent games and since the start of March, the only teams Everton have scored multiple goals against were Boreham Wood, Burnley in a game they lost, Leicester, Brentford in a game they lost and Palace. Mm. So 
you can see they are struggling to score goals, struggling to create chances on a regular basis. Damari Gray's played well, mm. obviously scored a very important goal against Forest. I wanted to ask you about him because he's a fantastic player and fascinating at the same time. He's got the ability to be excellent and early season, he is always very, very good. It happened at Bayer Leverkusen as well yeah, when he did. first went there. Why does he start so well and then fade? It's so strange because when he got to Leverkusen, I did, I think, his first couple of games. He was he was brilliant. And what was interesting is in the prep, you obviously look at all the interviews and what have you, and all the interviews he gave were, I've been looking at, you know, as much footage as I can of Bundesliga clubs. I'm really, I really want to do this. I really want to learn German. I'm really into this. And he was. And you thought, wow, this is going to be his new start. And then it got to the point where he wasn't even being picked. But they had a change of coach. Hannes Wolf came in. And it got to the point where he wasn't even trusted to start games, let alone be the match winner in games. So it was a really curious phase because on the face of it, there should be no reason for it. He has all of the quality, has all of the tools, but just doesn't seem to be able to sustain it. Yeah, it's strange because it's happened last season. I think he scored a few goals right at the beginning of the season. Leverkusen obviously scored a few goals at the beginning of that season and played well. And then this season, he started as the only person who scored a goal for Everton, apart from uh, an own goal from Luca Dina. Um, so it'd be interesting to see. I actually said during the game, actually, on Tuesday night, maybe he should play up front because uh, Solomon Rondon looks so far off the pace. It is, it is frightening. Um, let's talk about Brentford entertaining, strong, physically. They fancy anyone on their own patch. Um, it's going to be a really tough game, actually, and it's a measure of Everton's metal. If they can come through this in the game against Leeds, two away games in the next uh, couple of weeks, that will be really important for them because their next game after that is the Merseyside Derby live on TalkSport. They could lose all three. Uh, I know you think I'm, I've got a bit of a down on Everton. Well, you and have. You think they're you're, a just a neg- team. you're just negative. You, well, you, you and Durham. Durham, Durham's gone through this joy revolution, but except on Everton, in which he just wants to have a go at them. Well, I did predict that they would be one of the bottom three, which was quite a bold call at the start of the season, but I've not really seen anything to change that. You know, they do lack a goal threat. Uh, they desperately miss Dominic Calvert-Lewin. I think it's an important week off the pitch for Everton because they are in dire need of reinforcements. They need a bit of attacking spark. Defensively, actually, they look okay. I think they're probably better in that area than they were last season. But do I think they'll win at Everton, uh, Brentford? No. Do I think they'll win at Leeds? No. Do I think they'll win the Merseyside Derby? No. And uh, if that all comes to fruition, that is a, a really worrying start to the season. I think Brentford are an excellent side. Uh, probably a bit unlucky not to get a point out of Fulham. I think, again, Ivan Tony, um, who has been a terrific player for Brentford, he is playing as well as he has um, at any stage in his career. And that's saying quite a lot. So I think he will be a real problem for Everton. I think Brentford will win the game. I wonder if all these players that are playing really well at this moment in time are playing really well because it's the start of the season or because the transfer window is still open. Uh, 74% last year of uh, Everton's points came at home, which was a Premier League record. Right, let's move on. 4.30 on Sunday, Nottingham Forest against Tottenham Hotspur. Not one of uh, Forest's games so far has featured more than three goals, even that bonkers match with West Ham United. Uh, This might be similar because unless we get more of the Spurs we saw in the second half against Wolves, then they're just going to have to grind it out, Kevin. 
Yeah, but I think they'll do that in a lot of games, and that's often the Conte way. I think that was very typical Conte, actually, that game against Wolves, because they had to suffer. He talks about suffering a lot. <laughs> Seems in a weird way to enjoy uh, the suffering part of football, but they dug in, <laughs> and, and they, you know, Wolves played very, very well in that first half. I think we're seeing the impact of of the set-piece coach as well, Vio, but I think, I think we've seen lots of routines that are working well. It's interesting you, you listen to Spurs fans will tell you that they're generally rubbish at free kicks and corners, but suddenly they think, oh, maybe we could do some damage, actually. And the movement from Kane was excellent, the way that they blocked off defenders at the near post. So I think you're going to see this a lot. There's a lot of quality. Son, I don't think we've seen the best version of him just yet. Uh, and then some of the players aren't sparkling, but they're no longer the flaky Tottenham team of old. Uh, this is a team that is kind of trying to push Spursiness, I think, out of the building piece by piece. Uh, Spurs weren't very good against Chelsea. They weren't very good against Wolves either, but took four points because of Harry Kane, really, which underscores the value of having a striker, doesn't it? No wonder everyone wants to pay a huge amount of money for them, Chris. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the big difference. Um, and, and Tottenham actually have uh, as many options in attack as probably any team in the Premier League, maybe with the exception uh, of Manchester City. I don't think Son will start this weekend. I think Richarlison has, has come on and made an impact off the bench in the last two matches. I think Kulisevsky has had a good start of the season. At the moment, uh, Son, by his high standards, as Kev has articulated, really hasn't got going. So I think Richarlison probably uh, deserves his chance. I think this is a game that the Tottenham um, would expect to win um, and would expect to win reasonably comfortably. And if you take that Chelsea game out of the equation, they've had quite a kind opening a set of fixtures at the start of the season to really give themselves that that springboard uh, to challenge for the top four. They're not title contenders, uh, I don't think, but I think they should expect to cement themselves uh, in the top four uh, this season. Forest have played well in patches. I don't think we've seen a consistent 90-minute performance yet, but I guess that probably is a, a product of having so many changes in personnel. Yeah, Steve Cooper thought that Forrest should have won that game at Everton. I mean, they took the lead very late, 81 minutes, but I think anyone who actually watched the game will tell you that Everton were probably the better team in it and they they struggled a little bit at times, Nottingham Forest. But he'll be very happy if he can get another decent result at home. Remember, they beat West Ham United when they weren't the better team in that game as well. A couple of Sundays back, that's 4.30 on Sunday, part of the Sunday session. So it's Wolves against Newcastle United. Uh, will we see Alexander Isaac in a Newcastle United jersey anytime soon? Now, I, pl- I had a little bit of a laugh and a joke with you earlier on. I said that Real Sociedad would be laughing their head off about the fact that someone is prepared to pay £60 million for him. Now, I actually think he's a terrific striker. He's got a great opportunity to make an impact in the Premier League. Finishing isn't 100%, but his movement is good. He works well in a, a well-coached team. He only scored six league goals last season but the season before he scored 17. So he certainly got something. But the reason I was laughing, and while Real Sociedad, La Real, will be laughing all the way to the bank, is because £60 million is a hell of a lot, bearing in mind this is a guy that last year was being touted around for 40 and no one took him. Yeah, it is a lot of money. I think this will, in the end, be a deal that works for everyone, though. I think Real Sociedad didn't really want to let him go. He's still a very important player for them. He scored against Barcelona recently, even though they went on to lose the game. With the help of and, a bit of Eric Garcia deflection, I think. Uh, yes, that's true. That that was, a, that was a helpful flick, to be fair. 
But I, I think he's a guy that, even though he's still young, still in his early 20s, he's packed a lot into that career. Yeah. I think he moved to Borussia Dortmund too early. That's not his fault, but it, that didn't work out for him. Uh, and he didn't get regular game time there. He did do well in the Netherlands and then Real Sociedad took a chance on him and that's worked out really well for them. I think one of the big differences as well in terms of, you talked about his goal output, didn't have Martin Erdegaard behind him in that season where he only got six goals. Whereas they struck up a really good partnership uh, when they played together. He was providing the ammunition for Isaac. He's unusual. He's very tall, but... He's got lovely close control, can take players on. As you say, Sam, his movement's great. He's got good pace. And the finishing is the bit that he's got to fix. But I think with so many good attacking options around him and so much drive from midfields, I think he's going to be a really exciting player. And I'll be interested to see... Bruno Gimaraes, we know about... I mean, he was amazing against Manchester City. Got booked really early on then was walking this disciplinary tightrope and was almost putting the candle under the bottom of it to see how he could fray it, to see if it might snap. It was, it was, it was ridiculous. But stayed on the pitch, Casemiro-esque, but his passing is brilliant. And I'd yeah. be really interested to see if those kind of line-breaking passes can be used to try and play through Isaac. So I think it's going to be exciting for them and him. And, and obviously, I mean, the first reaction for uh, the chairman of the Callum Wilson fan club, Alex Crook, was, well, is he going to play in a two with Callum? My mate Callum, is he going to play up front with him? Well, the answer is he probably won't have to because Callum um, Wilson has missed so many days with injury. Uh, the likelihood is there is enough. There is enough football to go around for, for both of them. Do you know, Callum um, Wilson has missed 802 days of football uh, since, uh, well, just 802 days on the sideline since 2015. He's missed over 100 games during that period. I mean, that is a is a, a real worry, isn't it? And that's why they've got to have a, a different, they can't rely on him as the number nine. Yeah, and I think they realised that in, in some ways. I think the injury that, that Callum picked up at the weekend uh, highlighted the fact they needed um, an alternative option because, as I understand it, Newcastle weren't planning on spending £60 million on a single player and smashing their transfer record uh, this summer, despite the, the view from outside St James's Park that they are just chucking money around for fun. It's not the business model. I think this uh, £60 million is going to be paid uh, over instalments over a fairly long period of time in order to navigate financial fair play. But I think basically um, they realised that they, they did need to spend that kind of money to get the player that Eddie Howe really wants. And this is a, a classic Eddie Howe signing in many ways, 22 years of age, someone that's still raw, someone that he believes he could mould uh, to be a really good Premier League player, much like he did um, with Callum Wilson. So I think it's, it's a, another good piece of business for Newcastle. And I think... They are genuine European contenders. Uh, take West Ham, for example, who finished in the top seven in each of the last two seasons. If you were to ask me now, who's more likely to get a European place, West Ham or Newcastle? Oh, I would say Newcastle. Definitely. And then, you know, we'll move on to West Ham and a seamless transition as a result of that because they play Aston Villa on uh, Sunday at two o'clock. And I was actually concerned when David Moyes said in the aftermath of their latest defeat that his new faces weren't ready to be in the team, Skamaka in particular. Um, is that dithering from uh, David Moyes in terms of not being sort of decisive enough in putting him in the team and gambling on him. They need a goal, for God's sakes. Antonio's only got four in his last 31 Premier League games. Or, or is it sort of misplaced loyalty to Antonio? I mean, what, why has he not thrown Skamaka into the team? 
it's probably a bit of both, but I think as well, a, a lot of people that watched Scamacca a lot in Italy were quite concerned when he went to West Ham, only because he's not the same as Michael Antonio. Oh, no. I know he's a big guy, six foot five, but he's not that classic target man. He's a link player. He's somebody who's very, very good at bringing others into the play, whereas Antonio is strong, runs in behind, totally different type of player. So... I'd be really interested to see how long it takes for Skamaka to adapt because what we don't want is a situation like we had with Sebastian Allaire, who was totally miscast in that role as the lone front man, as the focal point, without runners around him. And Eintracht Frankfurt, who played in a completely different way. So That was a different regime though, wasn't it? That was Manuel Pellegrini. That was the in-between stage of the, the David Moyes two reigns. But was Moyes not there when Alaire was there and didn't really use him in the right way either? Totally, but so, they accepted that he wasn't fitting into their system. They they, yeah. they were like, you know, this guy's a good player. We know he's great, but we don't play in that way and we don't understand yeah. why he was bought in the first place because West yeah. Ham can't play in that way. But what it shows is that if you buy a player and don't really... It, I always find it really strange when you spend a huge amount of money on a player and don't seem to really have an idea of how they're going to fit in. Mm. It, it, it's it's an odd one. So I'll be really interested to see how he does, because he is a good player. There's no question that he's a good player. Did well for Sassuolo last season. Mancini's a massive fan of his, the Italy coach. So be interested to see how that goes going forward. I think they look a bit jaded as well. Flat. To a certain they just extent. look a little yeah. bit flat, don't they? You know, yeah. I know they've played a lot of football over the last uh, year or so. I wonder whether or not, and I mentioned this, I think, on last week's pod, you know, the idea of getting to a European semi-final and not getting to the final. And, yeah, you know, it's huge. Maybe it's huge. it has an impact. Maybe it lingers maybe too long. Maybe, actually, there's a few players that are in that squad that are thinking, oh, that's probably about as good as it's going to get. Potentially, something that could change it, a big signing for them, I think, if it goes through, is a guy called Hans Van Aken, who they've been really ah. strongly linked with, the club yeah, The Bruges. Belgian guy. Yeah, now, he... He is a leader. He is a really big personality, physical, tall, good attacking midfielder. Club Bruges fans at the weekend had this big TIFO, had this massive uh, banner saying, please stay, Hans, don't go. But he said afterwards um, on Belgian television, look, this might be my last chance. He's 29, 30. Yeah. So he said, look, this might be my last chance. It's definitely something I want to explore. And he name-checked West Ham. So if they can actually do that deal with Club Bruges, he's not transformative, but I think he's somebody that for right now could give them that impetus, could give them a bit of leadership, give them a bit of a push. Why, why are we so reserved in this country? Why aren't we just a little bit more European? Just be honest about it. You know, West Ham are in for me. You know, why, why can't we? Why can't, why can't <laughs> we make job easier? You know, come on, why can't we just be honest about it? Yeah, they're looking at me. Why is that a problem? I don't understand how that is an issue. Everybody knows what's going on anyway. So why why can't you be yeah. honest about it? I don't understand it. Uh, this is a big game for Aston Villa and for West Ham, isn't it? Because both of them probably have had underwhelming starts to the season. Very much so. Um, and uh, I, I think, as I mentioned, Aston Villa are looking to bring in Ben Nerek from Southampton to replace the injured Diego Carlos. I mean, that is a nightmare for any manager. You spend big money uh, on a new centre-back and he gets injured in one of his first games for the club. So clearly they're having to go a bit um, off-piste. I've not been impressed with Aston Villa really since Steven Gerrard came in. I think they spent an awful lot of money. Uh, in some cases, I think they've paid over the odds for players. If they were to lose this game to West Ham, I think those dissenting voices that we are starting to hear from Aston Villa fans will get louder. 
You've had a downer on uh, Steven Gerrard ever since he took over, and you want to do the same to Frank Lampard. It's the same old classic British media, big superstar England players try and bring them down by cutting them off at the knees. Outrageous. Outrageous. Hey, by the way, during the summer, Kevin, he kept coming up with this phrase, having a go at Darren Lewis. You you boys in the in the written media love to do this. I was like, hold on, haven't you worked in the written media for about 25 years? Where have you got Turned this from? on his own people. Like he's, it's a I mean, he, he's not even now just flip flopping on his predictions and his and his stories. He's now he's he's now turning on on his industry. Outrageous. And he's um, like, yeah, I haven't had a go at him about Cooley Bally, by the way. After oh, that hogwash the I mean, other day. <laughs> I mean, we, we 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 went out actually <laughs> afterwards, and uh, I said to him, "What are you? T-? I mean, I've ne- he does occasionally go on these ridiculous rants." But the, the chat about Koulibaly was one of the most ridiculous things I ever heard. Do you want to remind people what you said? I said he wasn't very good on the ball, playing out from the back, and maybe there's a reason that he hadn't come to the Premier okay. League before he was Stop 31. there. Here's Kevin Lord. Hatchard. <laughs> My Lord, uh, let me just put forward Exhibit A. Kalidou Koulibaly has had 114 line-breaking passes in the Premier League this season. The only player to take more players out of the game with passes so far is Trent Alexander-Arnold. <laughs> He's as well. Uh, against Leeds, most players look bad on the ball. And do you know what? That's exactly what I said to him last Sunday when he was having a go at Chelsea and saying how bad they were. I actually said, just remember, Leeds United deserve credit because they're a very, very good football team and they've done very well at the start of this season. And they play Brighton this weekend at 3 o'clock on Saturday. See that? Another seamless transition. And, and what do we expect them to bring down to uh, the Amex Stadium? Where actually, Brighton are worse than they are when they're away from home. Because Brighton, there's a sort of pressure involved with being at home, isn't there? Yeah, they are. Um, I think they play with a bit more freedom away from home. Having said that, this could be aesthetically the the best game of the weekend. I think two sides who play football in the right way, two up-and-coming managers, I guess. And again, I've I've had my reservations about Jesse Marsh at the end of the last season. I think he's already uh, proved me wrong with the start that Leeds have made. I think this is going to be a brilliant contest. I could see a draw. I think they drew nil-nil a couple of seasons ago, uh, maybe even last season. And Brighton were booed off, having had 28 shots on goal. And Graham Potter uh, usually doesn't get very flustered or reactionary. He was furious he did, with the home yeah, fans he did, didn't um, he? that evening, and, and rightly so. He sort so, of reminded them of their recent history, I think, didn't he? He I did. Mean, aftermath of he, that he did indeed. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this game. I can see a draw, but I think it will be a very entertaining draw. Um, obviously, if they do create a lot of chances, they'll want someone who can put the ball in the net, someone who did that. Uh, during the midweek Carabao Cup game was their new signing, Undav. Could you explain a little bit more about where he's come from, what he's done and what we can expect from him in the Premier League, Kevin? So he's quite an interesting character, Denis Undav. Uh, he was a player that was released at Werder Bremen for being too small at the age of 14. And he got persuaded with a scholarship to go 100 kilometres to a Hanover club, Havelza. Did a business degree, worked as a machine operator in a factory, and has kind of really fought his way up the ranks. That move to Union Saint-Gilloise in Belgium proved the making a bit of him because he scored goals at all levels. But there he was scoring in a title race and they came very, very close to actually winning the Belgian Mm. title last season, which would have been an enormous achievement. Works ever so hard without the ball. He's quite selfless. He wants to bring other players in. 
but he can score. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see, having scored as he's got up the ranks, whether he can score at the highest level uh, in the Premier League. But I think finally they might have got a goal poacher, so we'll see how he does. That's the brew, the Belgium club that Tony Bloom is also very yeah, heavily involved right. in, isn't he? So obviously it's quite an easy move for them to make to take him from that club in uh, the Belgian league to to Brighton. They take on Leeds this Saturday at three o'clock. I think we've done all the games now, which is good. Thank you very much for your company, gentlemen. We really appreciate that. Um, we'll be back on uh, Monday morning when you wake up with our podcast reviewing all the weekend's action. Of course, it's a little bit of a different podcast this Sunday night, isn't it? Because not only do we have to uh, look back at some of the big action from the weekend, but we've got to look forward to 10 Premier League games next midweek. I'll tell you what, this is going to be a hectic period over the course of the next uh, 10 to 12 weeks before the start of the World Cup, isn't it? I think there's a midweek game for any of those playing in Europe every single week between now and the middle of November. Good. Make them earn their money. And we've got the transfer window closing on Thursday. I think this deadline day could be the most bonkers transfer deadline day we have ever seen. Cheers, Crook. Thank you very much. Uh, Kev, see you soon. Pleasure as always. The Premier League All Access podcast is proud to be brought to you by Ladbrokes. The latest odds? We set them. Form guides? We've got them. Expert opinions? We share them. The best fans in the world deserve the best. Be match day ready before the whistle blows with Ladbrokes. Odds update on Talk Sport with Ladbrokes. Are you in? Let's go. Play at labrooks.com, 18 plus, be gambleaware.org, T's and C's apply.